This episode is brought to you by Militaries of the World. Look at you, sitting in your den, not accomplishing anything. Wouldn't you like to get out there and experience fun and adventure? Parachuting with your friends into an open field? Camping out in the wilderness? Singing songs together in a sleeping bag or on a hike? <gasps> well, Militaries of the World wants to invite you to join them on years-long vacation of daily thrills and enjoyment. You'll see fabulous places with smiling people happy to see you. Every day from morning to night is filled with planned activities under the joyous direction of your entertainment coordinator. You're a frog, Private! And frogs live under the mud! Are you crying? Get down and give me 20 push-ups! Again! When you sign up with Militaries of the World, you'll never again ask yourself, what shall I do today? You will be told. And someone will always be there to make sure you do it, and that you get the most out of it. And right now, our listeners can choose whether to take their interior exploration package, their cruise package, or even their aeronautics package, for those blissfully unconcerned about their masculinity. And thank you, Militaries of the World, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book. Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello, sir. It's good to see you made it safely through the gate and are here to strike out onto the Commonwealth with me. Yes, indeed. And now, listen, I want to remind everyone that we're going to be doing an Ask Me Anything on the Gene Wolf subreddit this uh, Thursday, the 21st, starting at 12 noon Eastern time. That's New York time or 9 a.m. Pacific, uh, Los Angeles time. So, you know, do the math on your own for everybody else. We'll probably rattle on all day until the questions peter out you know how we are so don't hold back on those questions give us the full boot please come over and say hi and ask something just for the very petty reason that the other two podcasts had a lot of action and i don't want us to look like sad moments. no 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 make up questions even if you're not interested so <laughs> yeah definitely but no we'll be around all day it's fun if you don't have a reddit uh, account. This is a good excuse just to make one for free, of course. And there's there's always in the main Gene Wolf subreddit, there's always lots of good discussion yeah. that you can hop into. I mean, it's probably the one place that as good as sometimes some of the stuff on Facebook can be, the nice thing about Reddit is it's all searchable and available. Like on Facebook, that stuff just kind of disappears. But Reddit, you right. can still go find the old things just like the Earth List. And it's very active. It's maybe one of the most active author subreddits I know of. Yep. There's even a joke subreddit now. Somebody made like a, <laughs> yeah, a, a meme, you know, crap posting kind of thing for Gene Wolf. It's a separate little subreddit, but it's fun. So, it, right. but yeah, if you haven't seen it, there's weird stuff to go check out over there. Absolutely. Uh, regarding the summary episode, we got a lot of positive responses. Uh, Stuart Ham really enjoyed the episode and the outro selection if the moon <laughs> turns green by billy holiday he says best work and by far best musical choice now <laughs> do we have a discussion about how lady day is related to head of the day 
Hmm. Yeah, you know, Craig, I can't believe the Lady Day connection never occurred to me, but that's that's awesome. Seems like it ought to. Yeah. Now, no corrections, but I mean, everyone's already taken their shots over the last 35 chapters. Mike Lejeune also likes our theme music. He says, the weird thing, I have occasionally daydreamed about what a new Sun TV series would look like. Your intro music is precisely what I imagine the intro to the show should sound like. <laughs> if this were a scene written by Wolf, it would probably mean something. In this case, I'm willing to chalk it all up to coincidence. Well, let's do an etymology on our names, Mike. Maybe we are the same person. <laughs> yeah, that music, by the way, is, if if we haven't said it in a while, it's from the Annihilation soundtrack. Right. The Natalie Portman movie and based on an even better, much, I mean, I actually like the movie, but it's based on an even much better book, which is the first of a trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. And that's a great soundtrack. I listen to that soundtrack it is. all the time. I yeah. Love it. Yeah. It's weird, kind of atmospheric, mm-hmm. classical type stuff. But then he tries definitely to sort of do like sound, like noise music a little mm-hmm. bit too at times. Yeah. It definitely goes into scrapes and right. odd things. I mean, we had, there's a tiny bit in the clip we had there, but uh, it's pretty intense stuff. So yeah, definitely good. And somehow it does invoke the world and the tower in some mm-hmm. way. I don't know. We also had a lot of discussion about our Christmas bonus episode with Glenn McDorman of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Very cool. Yeah. Stuart Ham, again, was curious about the father's name in the Wolf story, La Bafana, Joe Bananas. <laughs> uh, it just seems so silly. And I offered something useless about the word bananas meaning fingers, Joe fingers. But Michael Sloan did a deep dive and came up with gold. He says, Bananas is a pretty common nickname in the Italian-American community for someone with the last name Bonanno, most prominently the mafia crime boss Joseph Bonanno, whose moniker was also Joey Bananas, and with whom I think Wolf would have been familiar. I bet he was. (laughs) And of course, Bonanno literally means good year, which with the end of the year connotation of the nativity story, as well as the introduction of the Messiah, making this a really, really good year for the planet's inhabitants, seems to me likely reason for the name. Plus, Joe's name is actually Joseph, of course. And he wasn't done either. He thought it was interesting that the story, he thought it was interesting that in the story, Christ was born on another planet to a human Jewish immigrants rather than to the native species. He says, which would seem to imply in the story that for the incarnation to occur on other worlds, Jesus would have to be Jewish and born in the line of David. So Earth would be the first planet where the incarnation occurred. And salvation for each planet would have to wait until a starship could take a Jewish couple there. And then he went on about the Christian doctrine of one time for all. And it was really interesting. Check it out. It's in the show notes. No, that made me start thinking about how that would happen on different planets and how much, yeah, if like, like how much is the Old Testament necessary for the New Testament, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. that's very theological, but yeah, if you follow the whole Bible, then yeah, Jesus has to be of the line of the Jews. And so, yeah, technically, I guess he couldn't be on another planet unless yeah unless that happened but that's yeah that gets into very 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 strange theological territory (laughs) but but it's kind of fun it's fun it's also a cool 
like solution to that problem, which I think right. is pretty creative. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen Frew continues to move through the episodes. He got to chapter 18 episode of Shadow, and he has a lot to say. This is the chapter where Severian and Nagia crash into the Cathedral of the Claw. This is a long, beautiful essay, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice. It's about how the Uncreate works in Severian's world. It's about ambiguity in Wolf's stories, and it's about how it's fruitless to wring your hands about the improbabilities in this story, because more than anything, it's driven by the gravitational pull of good storytelling. He says, after all, as Freud said somewhere, Sometimes a phallus-shaped vial is just a phallus-shaped vial. <laughs> and he also has an answer to the point where Agia is explaining who the Pelerines are. And she says they never, and then breaks off because the Pelerines and the guards are approaching. He says, I must admit, I've always thought it was clear. These are nuns, and Agia is a person who lives in large part by manipulating men sexually. I think she was going to say, they never have sex. It's what she would find notable about them, a fact that would make her say, as she does. And, you know, that's a good point. That could be it. I think his essay is well put. And, you know, Craig, if we had a separate feed, I think I'd record him reading it. As we discussed in the summary episode, I think it's more complicated than that, but it's very well put. And there's a link in the show notes. So check that out. Well, Craig... The shadow is behind us, and the light of the claw is before us. So let's get on with it. You're talking about the election, or are you? Talking- <laughs> oh no, 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 no! The claw of the conciliator, chapter one: the village of Saltus. We made it. We have made it into the claw of the conciliator. How's that feel? That's pretty cool, actually. Considering we had no idea if this would even work. To have gone for over a year and to have done a whole book, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. If we had actually done the math on this, we probably wouldn't have even done it. But if we had actually looked into it. So I didn't think it wasn't going to work. I think I just very appropriately didn't think about the future. (laughs) Just dove right in. Ah, like a condemned man. So let's talk about the epigram for the Claw of the Conciliator. Yep. Why don't you read that? But strength still goes out from your thorns, and from your abysses the sound of music. Your shadows lie on my heart like roses, and your nights are like strong wine. So in this epigraph, we get a reference to the thorns on Christ's crown when he was crucified, and that harkens to the conciliator's thorn. Uh, We'll also get music in this first chapter. Uh, There's shadows and roses and wine because we're going to have a little water and wine Mm -hmm. event. And it's also all kinds of opposites. Strength from the thorns, like things that are dangerous. Music comes from an abyss instead of nothingness. And shadows lie on my heart like roses. So it's kind of like taking all these things that could be dangerous or frightening and finding some meaning or something in them too. Yeah, so this epigraph is from a book of poetry by Gertrude von Lefort called, in English, Hymns for the Church. It was first published in Germany in 1924. It was translated in the 30s by Margaret Chandler. And although I'm told it's easily gettable in German, the English translation is out of print. I checked Amazon and Abe Books. No luck. And I searched the fabulous internet for a text version of this particular poem, without success. Look, I 
buy this book if I could. I believe in physical media, but I just wanted to read the blasted poem. Even in German, I look for German texts. The thing is that Wolf often, I believe, includes citations not only because of the value of the citation itself, but because of something not included. That's kind of a big deal to my reading of the Fifth Head of Cerberus. So reading the whole poem would be useful. I don't even know which poems or hymns this citation comes from. You know, if Simon and Schuster were publishing these epigraphs without citing the text, they must be in the public domain. Listen, people, help a guy out. <laughs> and it makes it weird, too, just because I want to know where Wolf had it. Mm -hmm. Did he have it in an actual book of hymns? Did he have it in a book of quotations or something like that? Or was it quoted from something else? Like that's where I think I've said it a bunch of times already, but where I would just love to have Wolf's library or just a list mm -hmm. of the books that he had at some yeah. point, just to know just to know maybe what else was he reading that this came up from. Because nowadays it could have been very much like he went and looked for anything on Google that had shadow, <laughs> you know, any hymn that mentions shadow, let's just go find something. Yeah. But then it was all about what you had and what you'd actually read. So it would have been fun, but we just don't know. Well, I, yeah, trust me, I do outros. I know exactly how that feels. <laughs> yeah, and here's something interesting. She also wrote a novella called The Song at the Scaffold. Ah. Yeah. Very interesting. But I'll tell you something, Craig, none of this matters. <laughs> because after that deep dive in Castle of the Otter, also called Castle of the Days, in the chapter Hands and Feet, Wolf says that he knows nothing of Gertrude von Lafort beyond that she wrote these specific lines in the epigraph. So we move on. <laughs> But I may come back to this one because there's some things about it, like I said, about mixing up positive and negative imagery and, and taking things in different directions that a lot of Claw does, I think. So I'll be bringing this one back up. All right. So we start the narration in the village of Saltus and Severian is dreaming. Uh, I should say that in Castle of the Otter, Castle of Days, in that same hands and feet chapter that I mentioned before, Wolf says that the name of Saltus quote, indicates a narrow wooded valley. A little research on this, and I find that saltus in Latin means a narrow pass, a ravine, a defile, and also a forest or mountain pasture. The word might be related to silva, meaning forest. So that takes us to a uh, wooded valley. As we discussed, I suspect that if we were inclined to follow Severian's journey up the Nessus River to the north, Saltus can, practically speaking, be located at the town of Salto, Uruguay, on the Uruguay River, north of Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires, Nessus, Uruguay, Gael, Salto, Saltus. Not that it changes a single thing. But I'll be tracking Severian's path up the Uruguay River, and you can join me if you like. So getting into the story, if you're reading this for the first time, actually in the 80s, when you open this up, the first word is a character's name, and it's not a character we know from Shadow. <laughs> so from the beginning, you're in a cliffhanger moment, and he starts you off with a bit of a whiplash because now you're, I mean, we've already said it's a dream, but you don't even know that then. So you're already way far away right. from where you expect to be when it starts and just trying to figure out who is this Morwenna person. And then it's weird. And then you're like, okay, it's a dream. And then he mentions something about what happened before, but in such an oblique way that 
you realize you're not going to get anything explained about how you got to this point for a while. And honestly, it feels to me like it has flashbacks to events that haven't yet occurred for Severian. I mean, it's just quite disorienting, like the way the first volume of the Book of the Long Sun starts, but for different reasons. And we'll see elements of the dream play out over the next four chapters, six weeks from now for you guys. But I'm going to explain it to the degree that we're able. And that's a cool point. The fact that it starts kind of out of time, just like Long Sun starts out of time. Mm -hmm. That's actually really cool because... I can think of all kinds of reasons why that would be fun. It's sort of saying the real meaning for things isn't in the causes that you think of as causes, that there's all kinds of other stuff going on. There's fun theological ways to read that or, or philosophical, oh, yeah. but it also is just a different way to tell a story when you start not in the time of the story, really. And that's kind of what a dream is. It's a different time. So, uh, yeah, let's read it. Morwenna's face floated in the single beam of light, lovely and framed in hair dark as my cloak. Blood from her neck pattered to the stones. Her lips moved without speech. Instead, I saw framed within them, as though I were the increate, peeping through his rent in eternity to behold the world of time, the farm, statues, her husband tossing in agony upon his bed, little Chad at the pond, bathing his fevered face. So, Merwenna's face is in a single beam of light because Severian has decapitated it and is holding her head. Mm-hmm. But although he's met Morwenna for their official meeting, he hasn't beheaded her yet. I guess another possibility could be that this is like Morwenna in her cell and a beam of light was coming through on her head and that alone. But, you know, with the blood dripping on the stones, Zverian's dreaming of chopping off her head. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And thinking about the people she left behind. And also there is that sad moment there where he tells us pretty quickly that he thinks that your head will keep living for a few seconds, at least after it's cut off, which is terrifying. Yeah. And there is a myth about that, right? Oh, yeah. With oh, yeah. Uh, Levasse, I can't remember that guy. I can't remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, uh, he named Oxygen. <laughs> there was a whole movie about that. I think it was like a, or not a whole movie, but it was one of those anthology movies, I think, where somebody was obsessed with that. And Yes, yeah. Uh, what was that? But it's, you know, I, I, I did some backward reading on that, and it turns out that that's really unsubstantiated. That, really? that the story, I'll, I'll just say, the story is that... Uh, uh, I can't remember his name. It's it's French. You know, mm -hmm. you know, you French people. Um, <laughs> he he was decapitated during the reign of terror by a guillotine. But because he's a scientist, he wanted to know whether the head continued to live after death and mm -hmm. how long. And so he said that he would start blinking as soon as his head was cut off and he would continue blinking right. and they right. would keep an eye and count. And then uh, reportedly the people watching said he blinked like, 14, 15 times. But that that happened seems like it, maybe it didn't. But still, <laughs> it makes me think of that because yeah. her, her mouth seems to be moving like, or it could be that, you know, when he's carrying it, it's kind of moving back and forth. But it's a dream too. So I don't know. But then there's the moment too where he's, he breaks out of this and in, in his dream, he makes the comparison of watching her lips move as if he was God looking through the rent of eternity into time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as if it's going from one total way of looking at things into a worse way. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume worse or, I mean, you could just think of different types, different, different states, eternity to time, but looking from one world to another through that nonsensical movement. I mean, that's 
it's terrifying because everything you look at is so awful. And then it's compared to God looking at creation. And then it goes back to awful because of, because of the people she's left behind and how they're still suffering behind her. So it's this suggestive moment where Severian is doing his job, but I think the way that it's told is feeling some kind of either guilt or just trepidation about it because of all the horror associated with the image. But then at the same time, in the midst of that, there's a totally different perspective that is the opposite, I would think, in many ways. But also, Severian sees uh, Stachys, as the text says here. That's Marwenna's husband, who she's accused of murdering, right? Of poisoning. And Severian sees in his dream Stachys in agony due to being poisoned, and her child, Chad, at a pond, bathing his face, which is hot and feverish due, I guess, to being poisoned. Incidentally, this mention of the child's name, Chad, never going to get a mention of it again. It's just only in this dream. But the thing is, Severian's never met Steckies. He's never met Chad, as far as we know. They're already dead when he gets involved. So in this life, what's the deal? How does he, how is he dreaming about these people that he's never met? I'll just go to link that to something else. If you believe that beams of light on a person's head designate a family member of Severian in some way, well, here's one for you. And just to reference that, we had talked about that back in the jail cell with Agia and Agilis. Right. Yeah. Well, like a listener had mentioned that after the fact, but. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. Got to not take credit. Shoot, there's so much now. I forget exactly what we talked about, what other people had talked about. My apologies. Yeah. It came up in the in the comments. Listen to the comments, people. I will say that I am sympathetic to the idea that Morwenna's family is important to the larger occulted narrative in some way. And we'll discuss that when we get to it. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, St. Stachys is an obscure but sort of important saint. In Paul's letters to the Romans, he sends a greeting to a friend that he calls Dear Stachys, but it's not known that this is the same Stachys who was installed by St. Andrew as the Bishop of Byzantium. Stachys' name is Greek and means a spike or near a corn. Anyway, there's no interesting legends that I've learned about this guy. St. Chad was a bishop in Mercia in Britain. Again, He's important politically and ecclesiastically, but there's nothing to hang my hat on. St. Morwenna has a lot of iconography that might have been deemed helpful. She was of Cornwall in Britain, but nothing about her you know, rings for me. No, she was not beheaded. Her name is associated with the word maiden or virgin, but it means literally white sea. So if there's reasons for Wolf to pick those names it does not seem to be due to either their literal meanings or the legends associated with the saints. And the only thing I would say is that for no good reason, Merwin's name has always reminded me of Morgan Le Fay. Like, I don't know yes. why <laughs> exactly. Also kind of a reference to, to death. Yeah, that could well be. And Morgan is definitely more sinister. Like it wouldn't be Merwinna who would be Morgan. It would be... Oh, shoot. Ah, her name. Eusebia? Yeah, Eusebia. Thank you. Whose name I always think of as Megatherian because, I don't know, I think I misread it wrong one time. And so I'm like, Erebus? No, Eusebia. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the only thing, I think. And it just, Morwenna seems seems like a sad name. 
And I don't know now if I think of it as a sad name because I feel sad for her or if yeah. there's something yeah. about the. Well, it calls up morbid mm-hmm. and you know, yeah. a lot of uh, yeah. death roots. So back to the dream. Outside, Eusebia, Morwenna's accuser, howled like a witch. I tried to reach the bars to tell her to be quiet and at once became lost in the darkness of the cell. So like we said, Eusebia is the woman who accused Morwenna of poisoning her husband and child. She seems to have been more contemporary in age to Stachys, and Morwenna stole him away from her, or Eusebia thought she did. And frankly, although Severian never overtly admits it even to himself, I think that we're given enough information to be a certain that Eusebia did the murdering. When Severian goes to have his meeting with Morwenna, she's chained to, he says, next to a pond. And the midge flies are biting her. He said that she was very beautiful. Severian compares her, maybe suspiciously, to Thecla, but he notes that Morwenna's hair is black and straight, while Thecla's hair was curly, maybe wavy. And honestly, I think that's the only time we get that little detail about her hair. And Eusebia was there ranting at her. Like I said, this most of this comes out of chapter four. When Severian visits Morwenna, Eusebia was there. Uh, Saint Eusebia, her grandmother became a saint. Both her parents were saints. I guess, you know, the whole family is in heaven carrying on the family business right now. (laughs) But I didn't find anything to associate her with Morwenna's accuser. Anyway, Severian is lost in the dark in this dream, and he's following a light that takes him back to the piteous gate, where we'll get a little bit of information about what happened there in the last chapter of Shadow. When I found light at last, it was the green road stretching from the shadow of the piteous gate. Blood gushed from Dorcas's cheek, and though so many screamed and shouted, I could hear it pattering to the ground. Such a mighty structure was the wall that it divided the world as the mere line between their covers does two books. This is surely a metaphor for the the fact that we are currently separated from these events, right? between uh, from this narrative to the last narrative by the covers of two successive volumes of books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought the same thing. I got that. I mean, so many ways you could take that because the wall is the physical thing separating that, but also the wall is really separating you from knowing what happened, right? There's a, there's a huge, it's not just a line. There's a gap there as well. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's something about perception there about sort of being dependent on Severian's perception to tell us one thing or the other, but also just a difference in time. There's all kinds of separations. And I mean, I don't want to get too symbolic and too easy real quickly, but I'll do it anyway. (laughs) So the first thing (laughs) that's our job, we have to do it. I know, I know. But so much about this first chapter is about separations, right? Like the first thing you see is a severed head. And he's got the wall here and how it's a mark between two things. And there's a bunch of other stuff about separations that'll come up in the chapter that the first one was all about gates and gates can be opened and closed. And now we're getting something about a wall and severing and separations. Just thinking about how first chapters and last chapters and how they kind of set up different themes through the book. That's one thing I want to pay attention to. He mentions the wall very specifically here, but also the fact that the first image we get is a severed head. Yeah, there there are separations and distances and things being cut off. Just even that image of God looking through a hole 
to a different world. There's separations of worlds right there. So, so much about this particular book about so much that happens in claw all about separations and lines and severings. And anyway, in the dream, Severian gets to the end of the tunnel and he sees forests like he's probably never seen before and a road. Before us now stood such a wood as might have been growing since the founding of earth, trees as high as cliffs wrapped in pure green. Between them lay the road, grown up in fresh grass, and on it were the bodies of men and women. A burning carriole tainted the clean air with smoke. A carriole is a light carriage or covered cart, typically pulled by a single horse. So a carriage is on fire. Was this carriage somehow at the center of the cause of the confusion or just an aspect of the aftermath? And just from a very specific question, I've always wondered, is that supposed to be the thing that the guards were attacking? Is it something about that carriage? What right. went off or was it the first thing? Are we supposed to think that? Is it just a red herring? I mean, we'll never know. Mm-hmm. But since he points it out, it does seem that something about one carriage and then you're starting to think, okay, well, who else do we know about a carriage? And I guess we know, <laughs> I guess we know what's his face, Raucho. Uh, it's Raucho. So That's what happened to it him. It was Raucho running back to Syriaca <laughs> when he accidentally let the Megatherians loose and was killed. And there are five riders sitting on Destriers. Here we first understand that Destriers have hooked tushes. Is that how you pronounce it? Tush. Or tush. Yeah, I don't really know. Tushes. I don't know. I suppose I should look that up. Tushes. I'm going to say tushes. <laughs> Here we, for the first time, we can understand that Destriers have hooked tushes. A tush is a canine tooth. The Destrier have longish hooked canines, like saber-toothed tigers whose canines are curled up, mm-hmm. like tusks, I assume. And those hooked canines are embellished with lazulite. Lazulite is a rare blue shiny metal. Since you said lazulite, two of the colors we've got right here again are blue and green. He sees the green road. He sees the the forest, specifically calls out the green. And then again here we get oh yeah blue, blue light, blue. Blue destriers. Yep. And we're not even done yet because the five riders are wearing capes and helmets that are indanthrene blue. Is that... I think so. Indanthrene blue is an artificial dye, like indigo. I think this is a fancy way of saying that their uniforms are dark blue. Their lances have what Severian calls blue fire running up and down them. So, you know, Mm sci-fi. And Severian says that their faces are more like than brothers, strongly suggesting that they are a species of clones. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's what I think we're seeing. And like you said, these blue riders and the green forest, all the trees themselves are covered in green moss. Now, later Severian will talk about the Ulans attacking the travelers, and we get references to Ulans carrying lances with glowing blue tips. So it's inviting to say that these are Ulans. However, in the Avern dual chapter, there was a reference to the stables of the Zanaji of the Blue Demarchi. So, you know. Could these be Demarchi or Ulans? And, and the fact that they're, I like that they're wearing blue, yeah. right? I mean, it's nice that that comes back again, but I think, I think so. And now again, too, this is a dream, right? So it's not necessarily that he's picturing the exact soldiers 
that were there, um, especially with the blue, because I keep thinking of, you know, what else is blue? The claw. So something about the claw is coming up here. I and mean, we're going to see what the claw does in just a minute, or at least what the blue light does, what the blue things do. But, and I'm, I'm probably overreading it by necessarily saying it's the claw. But I mean, being a dream, there's two different at layers, at least at work in all these images. Yeah, he's looking back, but, I, but we have to be careful about looking at what we see here as thinking that's explaining what happened at the wall in a literal sense. Yeah. Or, you know, like American military, they all, you know, used to wear green. Maybe everybody wears blue if you're in the military. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, I do think that these are Ulans, but if they aren't, it's a new unexplained facet to this story, but I think they are Ulans. So the five writers are standing, just standing there in on their Destriers in the middle of the road, amid the rubble, the burning carriage, people going through the tunnel split left or right to either side, suggesting that they aren't killing everyone who leaves the tunnel. These people being allowed to split off to either side of the road. So the idea that they were attacking everybody who was leaving the tunnel seems to be a dead end. Something happened, has something to do with that burning carriage. And he describes the writers too as like a blade that was cutting the people as they come through, sort of separating the people again. And separation, it's there again. Separating people into two groups and, and specifically he and Dorcas, they end up on different sides. Dorcas is torn from his arms and he's about to attack to try and get her back. And then all of a sudden, Malrubius and Driscoll. Yeah. Oh, wait, 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 wait. There's some things I want to talk about. There's that carriage. It can't be Baldander's cart, right? I wouldn't think so. No, <laughs> that wasn't a covered cart as far as I could tell, but it could be as simple as the carriage and a crowd of travelers that didn't diverge off the road, but were just trying to go straight down. Mm -hmm. But maybe these Ulans at this point are looking for someone in particular as the crowd leaves Nessus through the wall. Uh, but still, you know, what happened to cause the initial catastrophe? I just don't know. Personally, I'm not sure it was one of Haythor's critters, unless the critters set the cart on fire. I don't know, though. Wolf hasn't given us enough information, and he never will. Okay, get ready for it. When the crowd splits, Severian and Dorcas get separated. Dorcas going in one direction, along with Talos, Baldanders, and Jalinta, and Severian going in the other direction, apparently with Jonas. Haythor? Who knows? As Dorcas gets pulled away, Severian pulls his sword. He says, um, I drew Terminus S to chop down all the people between us. Jeez. Jeez, Severian. And I found I was about to strike Master Malrubius, who stood calmly, my dog Triscally at his side, in the midst of the tumult. Seeing him so, I knew I dreamed, and from that knew, even while I slept, that the vision I had had of him before had not been dreams. Oh, there's a lot going on in these three paragraphs, right? And <laughs> even when it's about the piteous gate, it may not really be about the piteous gate. Right, right. So now he says here, and we talked about this before, that this is where he knows the difference between seeing Malrubius in a dream and seeing him in real life. And the difference is strong enough that it's his way of saying, at least I'm going to tell you one thing about the last book. I wasn't dreaming with Malrubius last time. Right, yeah. And... We know, of course, that he did not, as he left Nessus, encounter Master Malrubius standing in the middle of the road. That didn't happen because that's a dream, as he says. Right. 
although I would argue that it must have happened somehow metaphorically, unlike the other appearances of Malrubius, you know, yeah. this is a dream. So I think that being a dream, because yeah, the next line we get, by the way, is I threw the blankets aside. So after that, he wakes up and we find out it's all a dream. For real. Yes, but we should at this point remember when those previous events that he encountered Malrubius were that we now know not were dreams, not just right? dreams. There was in five legs. There was the the chat around the, the campfire. That was the big one. Right, right. Most recently. And then before that, it was when he saw him mm-hmm. peeking in on him yep. after his elevation ceremony at the Madachin. There's no mystery about those. But there was one other instance, right? Mm-hmm. When Severian was drowning. Yep. And for a long time, my guess was that what he was describing was a memory that maybe Juturna actually killed him in the river and Marubius and the Hierogrammates had resurrected him. And now I still believe it was a memory, but not from his own life. Some are going to say, well, you know, that wasn't a dream. It was a vision. Eh, not good enough for me. <laughs> How do you know the difference between a dream and a vision? I mean, the point is that it's the difference between Marubius actually acting and merely acting in Severian's mind. So, Craig, do you have any other angles to this? Well, yeah. I mean, going back to the dream there and taking it more as dream imagery, like I said, I'm less inclined to see this as really giving us much information about, you know, what actually happened at the Piteous Gate and instead be like, okay, what could it be talking about in different ways? So a couple things. One thing, I feel like all that blue with the soldiers has to be related to the claw. And if you read that last little section there, what's kind of going on too is the claw is almost like separating two groups of people. And it's Dorcas in particular who's separated on one side. What it almost looks like is to me is that the claw is separating the living from the dead or the people from, you know, from the right, (laughs) from, from actual connection and, and getting lost. The sheep and the goats. Yeah, Yeah, it could be, it could be. But I like the idea that what he's in his dream state doing here is realizing that if the claw really is real, then one thing it might be able to do is to be a way to, in weird dream logic, be a way to bridge the gap and and sort of, or at least open up that gap. And then he decides, because he's going to fight against it, right? And he's going to get back to Dorcas. But what we also know, really, and this is not something I think you would pick up on at all the first time you read it, but since Dorcas is going to say, you know, she doesn't belong here, then the idea that Severian is taking out a sword and really fighting so hard to get back to Dorcas. It's almost like he's fighting against the claw and whatever the power of the claw really is, because he realizes that it's something that is preventing him from, you know, being with Dorcas from, from being with the woman who at least at the moment he loves. Anyway, all of that's just to say that I feel like if you can take all that blue light as sort of him thinking and feeling about the claw, it's showing him feeling really ambivalent about what this thing is going to be. It's not spelled out at all now, but I think that there's going to be a lot of stuff in Call of the Conciliator where he feels really torn and unsure of what the claw is or or what good it would do or whether he should use it or or whether even its healing and resurrecting power is something that is good and he's not sure. And I feel like in some ways that's what the dream logic is getting at in that point. Very iffy. So do you believe that the scenes in this dream Everything we see here before Marubius appears, do you believe that these scenes, these things he's looking at, 
did happen or did not happen? I think they did not happen. Or if they did happen, there's nothing that says that they have to literally be like this. Just because some of what he shows, right, is, I mean, it couldn't happen, right? Like, it's it's just dream stuff. Like, the fact that, you know, one second he's in the cell and then the next second he's on the green road and then all of a sudden the green road is right. So things like that. But that last thing, too, where with the tide of the markers, even if that did happen, the dream logic could still work. Like it's still saying, okay, this was a scary time where you felt pulled away from someone you love. And you also maybe feel that way about the claw. So I'm going to mix up those symbols, you know, just that's dream logic kind of work right there. Well, that's what, that's what I think with the dream logic, it picks particular elements from your memory that matter. Yeah. And therefore speaks whatever is going on inside. Yeah, it certainly could be like, I think too, like the, we were talking about he'd never seen statues or Chad. I mean, he could have just been imagining mm-hmm. husband and son there. Like he may not actually know what they look like. I don't know. Point being that I'm, I'm just trying to figure out more what else is going on in the dream rather than just trying to, like, I just want to know why did he dream these things and why were they things that bothered him so much? Um, in addition to to getting those possible plot points filled in like to me the something about that green road the fact that the road that he is on is green (laughs) it's green it's in the first paragraph of a book or second paragraph it has to be important but i still don't that one i don't really quite know what it is i can't figure out on the green man unless it's like the green is the path to the future and so he's working towards the good future that the green man is i don't know i mean there's a lot about this and this is this is kind of where i always come up against wolf is so good at making dreams that don't make clear sense, but they, it also means I feel like that they don't necessarily clearly unlock um, until you get just the right weird perspective on them. And I still don't quite have it with this one yet. So that's one thing I definitely want to do is as we read claw, I do want to come back to it because this is the kind of thing that I feel like is really pertinent, not just to the whole story, but particularly how claw is structured. So once we finish the book, I kind of want to come back to this and see if I can make better sense of it. Well, I think you're definitely right. And I didn't pick up on this. The blue Ulans and the green forest. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. that's Wolf. <laughs> this isn't the first time. And yeah, I think it makes perfect sense. And I love that. Okay. So Tavarian wakes up, mm-hmm. throws off the blankets, but you know, in his mind, he's still an apprentice in the Manichin. The bell of the bell tower is chiming in his head, and he thinks that he has to get up and help in the kitchen where he can, you know, steal a sausage from the grill. He can imagine the taste already. He has to serve food to the journeyman and chant his lessons in front Mm -hmm. of Master Palamon, which is an insight into the rote schooling at the mansion. He looks around, totally confused, though. The memory Mm -hmm. of the tower is so vivid that it has pushed out all memory of everything that has happened over the last, you know, what, three or four weeks. Here's the ceiling too low compared to his room, the tower. Honestly, that, that may be a point in your favor too, that if he's still kind of caught up in that memory reverie, then maybe what was going on in his dream was him actually specifically remembering mm, yeah. things. And he's, it could still be the kind of, yeah, that reverie that he gets stuck in sometimes. But then suddenly it all comes back. He can smell the air of the country and the nearby stable. There are bells, but it's not coming from the bell tower, but from a campanile nearby that is calling the faithful of the apparently dwindling religion of the new sun. 
The other bells of the village are still silent. A cap and Nile is a, it's a bell tower, a little tower unattached to a building or church with a bell in it. But I'm guessing that unlike the bell tower in the Citadel, it, it's, you know, it's not a disused spaceship. The sun is just coming up. The night before, before going to bed, he folded his fulgent cloak with the cloth tucked inside. He was going to use it as a pillow, but at the last instant, he decided that it wasn't safe enough, and he put the cloth in his boot. And also, it rained last night. And since Severian is not going to call this out, he and Jonas, the guy that he met at the wall, and was coming on strong with Jolenta. They're traveling companions now. Mm-hmm. Dorcas, Baldanders, Talos, and Jolenta, they're not with them. Um, St. Jonas. St. Jonas was an Egyptian monk in the 300s who served in a monastery for 85 years as a gardener. That's it. That's how he became a <laughs> saint. But as it is with these saints' names, it's not usually about the saint. Sometimes it is. St. Gilda, St. Catherine. Not usually. Even though we can't track it down most of the time, in Jonas's case, his name calls to mind the Hebrew prophet Jonah. And Jonah was commanded by God to go preach to Nineveh and tell them that he was going to destroy their city imminently. Jonah was cool with that message, but he was not so cool with going to tell the citizens of Nineveh the great city of cruel conquering Assyria that made life so difficult for his people that God was going to destroy their city because he knew how God was. Jonah would go through all the trouble of announcing their destruction. Then the Ninevites would become afraid. They'd ask God for forgiveness and they, you know, you know how God is. He'd forgive them. So (laughs) instead he hopped on a boat going in another direction, but then the ship encountered a storm like the sailors had never seen before. They figured that someone on the boat was to blame. So they cast lots, which is, you know, like throwing dice. Let's say they throw dice to find out who it was. And it fell on Jonah. And Jonah admitted that he was on the run from God. So Jonah told them to throw him overboard and they'd be saved. At first they didn't want to, but eventually they relented. And when they did, the storm stopped. And then Jonah got swallowed by a big fish, a big fish's mouth. Actually, I have no idea if there's a connection, but there is a fish's mouth at the end of this volume. The point is that Jonas is a shipwrecked sailor, and so the name is apt. It's true. Also, um, a Jonah is someone who is unlucky on a ship. The other thing about the name, too, is that it's one of the few names that seems like it could also be almost modern. And I mean, I, actually, I guess it is. If you think of the boy band, Jonas Brothers, <laughs> <laughs> Which I had never made that connection until just now. Oh, geez. <laughs> but no, I was thinking that given that he's from so far back and, and the only other name that we get is, right, the Korean pilot's name. Right. Um, then, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's really it, if it's supposed to be, you know, is it an, a corruption of John? Is this just a, a weird way of pronouncing John? I don't know. Well, I would guess his name isn't Jonas, right? He may have picked that name because of his past. Right. Right, because Jonas is a it's a name from the Commonwealth, right? It's it's named after a saint. Yeah. It's probably a name more like something we would know. Yeah. Maybe it's John. I don't know. But that would be a saint, so probably not. But we we skipped one uh, rather important sentence. 
Dewey Gibbonsons. As Jonas had discovered the night before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Big moment here. <laughs> Jonas discovered that their water ewer had wine, wine. in it and not water. A, a ewer is just a pitcher. And this is, the consensus agrees, a Christ miracle by Severian. He seems to have turned the water into wine. Now, to be totally fair, we don't actually see him take a sip of water and then be like, aha, and then take a sip of wine to see it change before our eyes, right? Like that, we don't exactly see that. Yeah. But it's... Well, it just seems unlikely that the innkeeper would put wine in the pitcher for guests. Also, it's not terribly useful. Uh, you know. That's right. Still, you know what? I've heard retorts like that to my theories, so... Just covering all angles. Maybe he just put wine in the ewer. <laughs> but he does have to use it. So there's no regular water. So he has to use that to basically brush his teeth. Exactly. Also, continuing to be fair, I've argued the claw miracles are all not performed by Severian, but by the first Severian acting behind the scenes. And I've argued that this must be because Triscally, Dorcas, the children in Thrax, there's no point in these miracles being orchestrated by either the Hieros or the Megatherians. They only make sense from the perspective of Severian himself to act with knowledge of his own life and a little bit of early preparation and planning to improve it. But I don't see any real value in the first Severian turning the water into wine either. It didn't even happen during Severian's dream where he sees Mount Rubius. It happened the night before he went to bed. But this thing, like you said, is sort of a, you know, sort of, oh, oh, oh no, never mind. I'm thinking of a line from Mystery Science Theater where <laughs> a miracle happens and then like, it's kind of a small miracle with not very many consequences, but okay. Anyway, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but no, so like you said, it's kind of a weird little thing. Like, why would you just turn this to wine when they don't really think much of it and it doesn't seem to signify much to them very much but it might also be it's an inconvenience yeah it is actually yeah but it's also if you want to look for a reading where the clause action is kind of random this is a great one, yeah right because severian himself doesn't know quite how it works and how to make it work and this would be a place to look to say yeah it truly is kind of random like it has this apparent meaning to it but it also is just pointless sometimes. Right. Oh, anyway. So, well, we should ask, so is Severian Christ? Yeah, well. <laughs> just answer it now. <laughs> it's quite a tale. I don't, he's, no, he's not, I guess he's a Christ figure, right? He's not, yeah, he's not that's, Jesus, but. No, Wolf says that, Wolf says he is a Christ figure. So yeah, he does say he's a Christ figure. Yeah. There he says he's yeah. a Christian, not a Christ. And. Yeah. Joan Gordon thinks that, well, he just lost his nerve. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the one, uh, apart from resurrection, which I guess is a little bigger miracle. This is the one other miracle that is specifically very much, I mean, Jesus Christ, that this is definitely that. It's not a Messiah. It's not just a, yeah. you know, a hanged God or a burned God or a resurrected God. You know, it is definitely to a very specific mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, the only way you could make it better is if he was at a wedding or something. So. Right, right. So Severian pours some wine to rinse his, out his mouth, but he can't splash wine on his face and smooth his hair. So he's going to go do that with the bucket in the well in the inyard. Uh, the inyard is just a yard, 
adjoining the end. Jonas is still asleep. Severian notes at this point what Jonas looks like. Uh, straight nose and straight forehead, which he considers to be something out of a different time. He's seen people like this in old pictures. It makes him look ancient, mm -hmm. which brings up the question of what people in Severian's time look like. You know, when Severian meets the man-apes, Jonas tells him that the man-apes have lived under the ground so long that they've changed from normal humans into a kind of separate species. And Severian asks, well, why didn't everyone else change? And Jonas says, well, you did. <laughs> you just don't, since you change, you don't even notice it. <laughs> so it makes me wonder if, you know, in Severian's world, people have heavy Neanderthal brows and bulbous noses. Yeah. But when Severian sees the body in the mausoleum, he says he has the same features as himself. A straight nose, deep set eyes, sunken cheeks. I don't know. Maybe it's unknowable. Maybe it's just a hint that people have changed. Yeah. And unless he's also trying to just say the same word, but mean something a little bit different here with straight. True. And yeah. it, we knowing that Jonas is half robot, but want to know, like I keep thinking, is this like some, like did you ever see Red Dwarf? Yeah. Have you, uh -huh. unless he has a straight forehead, like Crichton does in Red <laughs> Dwarf. <laughs> but yeah, the, but I, I don't think that's really what he's saying. Cause he never makes the connection that Jonas is robotic until yeah. he sees the metal parts in later on. So it wouldn't be that he had the face. Yeah. No, he does. He doesn't yeah. look bizarrely different, but he does kind of have an strange face, right? Like he doesn't belong. Yeah. Which, so here's a, here's a question. So, if, as I assume, the idea is that Jonas really was a robot who then used biological parts mm -hmm. to help himself, does that mean that he's got a face from someone alive yeah, now? I think so. <laughs> That's what I believe. But it looks, but it looks like someone from a long time ago. So I don't know. Maybe. Well, it's uh, it's I don't know, I don't know. how it works. How it yeah. works. The skin is draped over his face. Uh, oh, know. maybe. It could be as gruesome as that. Maybe, yeah. you know, maybe there's like a frame or something there. We need some more skin to spread over. I don't know. I guess it could be. It could be. Hmm. Yeah. I just never knew quite how detailed and literal. It's interesting that, that the shipwreck sailors had those skills that they could put right. a human <laughs> yep. face onto yep. a robot. If they, oh, yeah. That's something we all learned in sailor school. He says all this to say that when Jonas is asleep, he looks older than he supposedly is. And of course, we know that he is. Yeah. Anyway, Severian leaves without waking him, which is also an interesting detail that has never occurred to me before. He's he's sleeping. Jonas mm -hmm. is sleeping. Talus doesn't sleep, but Jonas does. Yeah. It seems if yeah. he really is sleeping. Oh, sneaky Jonas! But I think he really does, right? Doesn't he actually go unconscious in the energy? Yeah, like he sleeps, and that's when Heather. So yeah, so Jonas really does sleep, whereas it's suggested that Talus doesn't. Now, granted, they they could well be different types of robots. I mean, in no yeah. in no universe do robots sleep. But I mean, you know, we have to go downtime. I don't know. Maybe it's because of his human parts. I don't know. Oh, could be. Anyway, Severian leaves without waking him. So the village has woken up now. It's rush hour. There are cattle being driven down the street by three dusty and common-looking riders with iron-tipped goads that are longer than they are. And they have, quote, hard, watchful, 
low-bred dogs. The sound of the streets are, quote, alive with hooves and the clacking of scimitar horns. Horns that look like scimitars is a interesting casual description, right? Yeah, dangerous. Dangerous and heavy. Very heavy. The driven animals are all taller than a man. Some are black and some are piebald. There's coarse hair falling across their faces, half-blinding them. Severian tells us that these are going to the river to go south into Nessus to be sold to the slaughterhouses there. And here's the interesting part. Severian at this point remembers that Morwenna's father had been a drover. A drover is someone who drives cattle to market. Severian considers that this herd could very well be Morwenna's father's. But, you know, that seems unlikely. <laughs> so two possibilities on this one. One is that Severian just has Morwenna constantly on his mind, long after all these events had occurred, at the time when he's relating this. Because he doesn't want to admit it, but, you know, he thinks he executed an innocent woman. But in these events that he's describing, his thinking at the time, she's on his mind even before. So the other reason that we're going to talk about Morena's father is because her family matters mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Now, the first is easier to argue. I, I don't know that Severian has beheaded a family member in some kind of sense, but you know, I don't know. Right. It's there. It's possible. Morena is young. She could actually be the same age as Severian. Is Wolf deliberately putting women in Severian's path to make us think this could be his sister? Yeah, I've wondered that too, just because, I mean, it, there are a lot of things about her, the fact that she takes up so much in the very first chapter, the fact that her name is the first word of the book, um, have always made me think that she should be much more important. And in some ways, it almost seems like she shouldn't be, because we know that he talks about how many times when they're on the road later, he plies his trade, right, and, and does this. But something about this one stands out to him. It could be that it's still that he's just not used to doing it. I mean, we talked about how in the one chapter where he's thinking so much before the night before having to kill Agilus, that maybe all of that is nervous thinking and rationalization and all that kind of thing. So maybe he's still resisting what he has to do in some ways, in some psychological way. But yeah, at the same time, though, Morwenna just seems like she should be she plays a bigger role than we really understand. I I feel like she is, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I'm not exactly sure. I feel like I have failed you, dear listeners, <laughs> because I on this one I don't really have even a guess. Because if she is his sister, I I don't know what to do with that. Right? You know, I just I just don't know. So, I mean, my inclination is to think of her more as symbolically important that he's thinking about her because he does think that she's innocent. So he's worried about that, that what actually what's maybe gnawing on his conscience is that he, it's the first time where he's got to carry out his duty, but he wants to not obey because he feels like the wrong thing is happening. And so he's maybe resisting that some way. Then thinking about whether or not that's her father out there, it just keeps humanizing her. Like everywhere I go, I walk outside and I'm like, oh, is this part of her family? Is this connected to her? Is this someone who's going to be hurt when when this happens? Right. Yeah. And that all kind of makes sense. I just feel like with Wolf, it seems like there ought to be 
there's some hidden plot thing here that I just haven't figured out. Yeah, I, I believe that there is, and I don't believe we're ever going to know what it is. And <laughs> I will say, though, that being said, it still definitely does work, I think, as him worried about. It still works. It still works. But I do feel like there's something. I mean, it can be that, and it can be him worrying about her being innocent. And killing her. She's she's big. I mean, she, literally, she he has a dream about beheading her the night before the excruciation this is not a memory of after otherwise he's talking about memories right of the wall and all but in this case no no he's i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't have a i don't have a theory to spin if that's the case it's another separation it's another line getting sort of Mm -hmm. driven between his duty and his conscience or his duty and justice which we know are supposed to stay totally separated but maybe they're right they're starting to bleed into each other a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, Severian goes back to the inn, but I, I guess this is not his room that he's going back to because he it's like a dining area. He orders breakfast. The food is described. Bread warm from the oven, newly churned butter, pickled duck's eggs, and peppered chocolate beaten to a froth. The peppered chocolate froth is a sign that the people in this inn are from the northern customs. They've immigrated south. It's good food, but Severian describes the innkeeper as, quote, our hairless gnome of a host. (laughs) Uh, We get some descriptions of common people here that, along with his descriptions of upper classes at Agilus's execution, reveals Severian is a bit of a class snob. Oh, yeah. Even at the late date that he's writing this memoir. Right. Yeah. His host, quote, had no doubt seen me in conversation with the alcalde the night before, hovered over my table, wiping his nose on his sleeve, inquiring about the quality of the dish as it was served. Severian really liked it. Promised better food at supper, condemning the cook, his wife. He called me sir, not because he thought, as they sometimes had in Nessus, that I was an exultant incognito, but because a torture here as the efficient arm of the law, was a great person. Like most peons, he could conceive of no more than one social class higher than his own. (laughs) Yuck. Yeah, he's remember how he treats the guy in the town out on Lake Diaturna, where he just he just decides to go full on. Yeah, I'm just going to pretend that I'm more important. Yeah, (laughs) I'm a master and I'm going to make everybody do this. And there he gets payback for it because, (laughs) yeah, they capture him but here yeah it's it's right. a kind of thing that happens over and over again i don't know what it is about the place where he stays and, and in people remember because he does the same thing in shadow too where the trick they say is go in and just act like you belong there and threaten threaten them and right they'll give you what you want so something about ends and well in that case it's that those are just torturer manners yeah. right that's what they do yeah. if, if i need a space beside the pool i'll just go sit here Eventually, they'll leave. I need a room in an inn. I'll just sit here. They won't like it that I'm here. I will get a room because they'll want to get me out of the common area. But no, Severian is definitely a classist. (laughs) Yeah. Severian was thinking of asking the innkeeper to give him and Jonas separate rooms. He doesn't think Jonas is a casual thief. Not that he can know for sure. I mean, he might have only met Jonas very recently, two or three days ago. Judging by the rate of the plot in the first volume, but you know this is the claw of the conciliator, and he didn't want to tempt him. Anyway, Severian says that he wasn't used to sharing a bed. 
well, maybe not at the mansion, but in the last four nights between Citadel and the wall, Severian shared a bed twice, once with a giant. Mm-hmm. But then Severian reconsiders because he's not sure Jonas can afford his own room. You know, Craig, now that I look at this, I'll bet the wall event, Severian's being approached by the Alcalde, and the Alcalde is like a mayor or whoever is the chief judicial officer in this town. Anyway, the wall, the meeting of the Alcalde, and Severian's meeting with Marwenna all happened the same day, just the day before. And that's why Severian is only now considering separate rooms. I uh, reached out to Mantis on this because in Lexicon Earthus, it says that it's about a week afterwards. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I've always assumed, too, was that it was longer. And as soon as you brought that up, it changed my timeline of these books. Yeah, just a little bit. And Mantis says, well, you know, you know, maybe the first night they slept rough. So after talking about it, kind of agreed, but it couldn't be as long as a week, but it could be maybe two or three days. But I'm going to say it happened yesterday. We have had one night <laughs> since the separation at the wall and all of this happens because, and that's not surprising. I mean, look at Shadow, look at all the things that happened his first day away from the Citadel. Yeah. And it also would explain maybe more like I always thought the strange thing was well, I thought he was so attached to Dorcas. Like, why isn't he looking for her? Why has he been just hanging out in this little town for a long time? And maybe, yeah, everything has happened in one day, one night. And the Alcalde came to him that night when he, some rumor got around that he was there. And that actually f- makes it feel a little more plausible to me. The only thing that doesn't necessarily is the fact that Jonas and he are a lot friendlier right off the bat and if it's just been they did become fast friends of course they they shared a bed that's true true. and maybe something else happened right and maybe there was some kind of i don't know bonding experience running away from from the wall but well jonas is just a very personal person right he he does really connect to severian very fast for whatever reason Mm -hmm. but you know severian doesn't know how much money uh, jonas has he doesn't know if he's a thief or not, or whether you can trust him. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think it's been just one night. That's true. He does mention that he still, you know, hid the claw and worries about whether or not Jonas. Right. You know, so there's still some suspicion there. So less time may make sense. And he's only now thinking about separate runes. Why would he not do it, you know, the night before? So now we're going to be told that there is more than one major execution event coming up. They've buried a man alive as punishment, a man named Barnock, and now that they're going to remove him. So the innkeep says, uh, you will be there today, sir. When they break through the wall, a mason could take down the ashlers, but Barnock's been heard moving inside and may have strength lust. Perhaps he's found a weapon. Why, he could bite the mason's fingers, if nothing else. Ashlers are building stones, so they've piled bricks against the entryways. Severian says that he's not going to be there in an official capacity, but he he might go watch. The man says there will be a two-day fair today and tomorrow. In this sense, you know, probably a market slash celebration. The economics are not exactly obvious, but I think an annual state fair, that's like a cross between Six Flags and a huge market and a community celebration. An insight into the way Severian sees the man. He says that his hands 
slithered together as he talked as if they had been oiled. And uh, let's see. Yeah, we get the story. The Alcalde saw Severian and Jonas eating at the inn, and that would probably be, you know, noon or so. Then he enlisted Severian to execute Morwenna and Barnock. And the Alcalde has announced there will be a fair. Severian went out to meet Morwenna last night. It all happened in one day, half a day, really. This is Severian's life, people. (laughs) It's not a lot for him in one day. So um, let's see. It's now, at least from Severian's point of view, remember, it's possible that he's been time shifted around, you know, but it's now, by my personal reckoning, if he left the Citadel on a Sunday, Monday was the Avern duel, Tuesday was the meeting with Agilus and Hathor, Wednesday was Agilus's execution and the vision with the, of the temple with the Pellerines, Thursday they crossed the wall, and now it's Friday, fifth day since Severian left the Citadel. Uh, the innkeep goes on. Why, today we'll open the sealed house and pull Barnock out like a badger. <laughs> uh, is that some sort of reference to Hildegrin, Craig? Hildegrin the badger? Oh, I was looking for one, but I'm I'm just... Well, you know, like I noted in the Shadow of the Torture summary, this volume begins with a man who's buried alive in a house, brought out, And it ends the same way. And apparently there's a badger at each end with all these things. You know, if there is a subjective metaphorical sense, you should at least keep your eye out for a more literal sense as well. Maybe even a practical sense. I don't know. Origins, three levels of interpretation. Maybe the practical sense is how to extract a man who has been buried alive. I don't know. And those are a kind of resurrection? of a sort. So we are still getting a bit of death and resurrection here. Yes, sure. Actually, both sides. Today, Severian's going to execute Morwenna and tomorrow he'll execute Barnock. Interesting point to me, Morwenna is weighing heavily on Severian's mind already. He doesn't yet have evidence that she's not guilty. It could just be that she is a woman. That's true. Or that she looks a little like Thecla. But there's always the possibility that it's even more than that. The innkeeper is imagining how Severian will go to work on Barnock. Hot irons you start with, usually, don't you? Anyway, innkeeper is a big fan of his mare. Severian goes out and watches people setting up for the fair, people from the country carting in fruits and animals with bolts of cloth that they've made. There are autochthons carrying furs. The word autochthon comes from the word autochthonous, meaning indigenous. The word literally means own soil. This kind of suggests that the dominant culture of the Commonwealth is a more recent import than that of these people. Autochthons are naked, rustic people. Think of the remote Amazonian tribes. I think that's what Wolf is getting at. Yeah, I think so. And they play a much bigger role in sword. We talked about much more there, mm-hmm. but yeah, they show up here and the fact that there are indigenous people and that possibly everyone that we met from Nessus is a colonizer brings us back again to a kind of colonial yeah. situation, a long, long solidified sure. colonial situation, but in fifth head and here, <laughs> yeah, yeah we've, we've definitely got that. And the autochthons are also carrying in strings of black and green birds killed with the Serbatana. 
A Surbatana is a blowgun. You've seen National Geographic videos, I'm sure. Severian notes that he no longer has the brown mantle that he bought from Agalus. Maybe Dorcas was wearing it. Uh, maybe it got left behind in Essus. But, you know, we're never going to see it again. And then he hears the sound of marching. He hadn't heard that since he left the Citadel. But there are soldiers coming into town from the river, the opposite direction of the cattle. They aren't staying in Saltus. They're headed out beyond it. And Severian doesn't know where they're going. But the innkeeper says that they are going to the mountains, whatever that means. At the back of the line, Severian doesn't see it yet, but there are baggage mules with rations. He says, I heard the shouted order to sing as they came into the thickening crowd, and almost together with it the thwack of the vintner's rods and the howls of the unfortunates who had been hit. So, a vintner is a commander of 20 men. It seems to have been a rank that started under King Henry VIII of England. And apparently... This is not necessarily a volunteer army because the Vinkners whack the soldiers as they march. Yeah, yeah. Severian guesses that there are between 2,000 and 2,500 of them. So there are a lot of Vinkners. So the commanders command the men to sing as they enter town. The soldiers themselves are Kilau. Uh, Lexicon Earthus really came in handy with this chapter, I'll tell you. Not just this word either. A Kilau is a slinger. It comes from Hebrew or Arabic. They carry old-style slingshots that you spin over your head. And Severian describes them as painted leather pouches. And Severian notes that the shots they carry are incendiary. And Lexicon Earthus identifies these as shooting stars. And where did Mantis get that? Well, Lexicon Earthus doesn't say, but Wolf explains it in Castle of the Otter, Castle of Days. At that hands and feet chapter. He says that these incendiary bullets, as Severian calls them, are pyrotechnic missiles. And he says that these are the shooting stars of the song that they sing. The other thing, too, is he says the handle for this thing is two cubits long, which is a pretty big handle. Yeah. So this isn't isn't just a tiny little sling. Yeah. So. They're all pretty young. To Severian, few look older than himself, and most look a lot younger. But Severian is impressed by their look, and here again we have Severian imagining an alternate life as a soldier. He notes their gilded brigadines and the rich belts and scabbards of their long daggers that proclaim them as members of a, quote, elite corps of the Aaron Tari. All right, so a brigadine is a coat of mail. It's a tunic of metal rings, and these are gilded, meaning they're coated to look, you know, probably gold, but definitely glittering. All right. Aaron Tari. Their gilded mail coats, their elaborate belts and scabbard, long knives, identify them as, as an elite core of the Aaron Tari. I, I, all right. I did another deep dive on this one, trying to find the history of this word. Lexicon Earthus says only that it's light infantry, but it doesn't quote a source. Now, I can find a reference to Ferentari with an F, as a name for Roman light infantry. But I'll be hanged if I can find a reference to the word Arantari, or piece together an etymology that would explain why it would be the name selected of an elite corps. Now, Ferentari derives from the Latin roots meaning to hit. So the Romans called light infantry the hitters. 
perhaps, you know, this is an authorial error. And Wolf intended to make a joke about the name of a quite unelite military group being given to an elite one. The Hitters is a pretty cool name, after all. So at last, I reached out to Mantis about this word. Where did it come from? Was it an authorial mistake? I mentioned the definition of the Ferentari. And Mantis said that if Ferentari is a wolf error, then he's at least consistent in it. And then he directed me to the actual source of the Lexicon Earthus definition. Once again, Castle of the Otter, Castle of the Days, chapter, Hands and Feet. Anyway, near the end of that chapter where we get Wolf's etymology of Saltus, Wolf writes, Severian goes outside to watch some soldiers who have been landed there to march up the village street. The men are slingers and members of, quote, an elite core of the Arantari crack light military, in other words. That's Wolf. Now, Mantis also notes that the definition for Ferentari was also included in George Cameron Stone's 1934 reference, a glossary of construction, decoration, and use of arms and armor in all countries and in all times, together with some closely related subjects. That's the title. It's cited in the bibliography of Lexicon Earthus, and Mantis attests that Wolf used it as a reference a lot. So I'm going to opine that the word Wolf was originally reaching for was Ferentari. And Mantis set me right that, look, the text doesn't say the Arantari were an elite force. It says that these slingers were an elite force of the Arantari, that is, light infantry. Crack, light infantry. Mystery solved, my friends. Cut to correction in two weeks. <laughs> Sorry, folks, I was wrong. <laughs> Actually, I do feel pretty confident about this. Michael, please feel free to use my name with the third edition of Lexicon Earth. <laughs> but no, I mean, for the first chapter of the second book, to me, it's obvious that one reason why he's doing so much description of the military is partly so he can get all these terms in there and be like, hey, remember in Shadow when I made up all those words? Yeah. That's <laughs> I mean, there's there's got to be a little bit of that. Yeah. But they also, in order to fit what they're supposed to be doing, they need to be right. Right. They have to really be real words. Hey, let's get to the song they sing. Here, Wolf is channeling Kipling, I think. he has, Kipling had a lot of poems that were essentially military songs to be sung while marching. And Severian describes the subject matter as, quote, a true slinger's song. And I guess it is a slinger's song because of the mention of shooting stars, as Wolf said. These are their incendiary pyrotechnic shots that they fire. He records the song as he heard it with an offhand acknowledgement that these types of songs are constantly changing and have innumerable versions. When I was a lad, my mother said, you dry your tears and go to bed. I know my son will travel far, born beneath the shooting star. In after years, my father said, as he pulled my hair and knocked my head, they mustn't whimper at a scar who were born beneath the shooting star. A mage I met, and the mage he said, I see for you a future red, fire and riot, raid and war, oh, born beneath a shooting star. A shepherd I met, and the shepherd said, We sheep must go where we are led, to Dawn Gate, where the angels are, following the shooting star. 
Severian says that the song went on and on. Some of the verses were cryptic to him, some were comic, some clearly assembled purely for the sake of the rhymes, which were repeated again and again, unquote. Now, I forget, is this the only little song like this, at least with, with multiple stanzas, this and then the one in the end, the end of the book? Well, there's the one in Shadow where he hears the rowers rowing. The God is for us. And yeah. Yeah. But just those two, right? I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember if there's another one. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Yeah, since there are so few. I mean, that one is almost really moving the first one not this one <laughs> but the the one about the oh actually hang on i know where to look and, and and i can tell you hold on wolf actually puts all of the songs that he uh does in this one chapter all the epigraphs and it appears the only other verse would be the spell that Severian puts over his uh yeah the the sailor song really actually seems kind of moving i mean especially in in context this one possibly it's more i don't know ominous a little bit but but just because he does it so rarely they stand out but otherwise it's more like little doggerel verse yeah but it's definitely just a marching song right it's it's kind of something you might see in a kipling book of verses these soldiers are southerners they're from the cold, cold South. And this won't seem strange to you Australians, but to us in the Northern Hemisphere, it throws us a bit. The innkeeper says that he knows they're from the South because some have yellow hair and dotted hides. That is, they're blonde and freckled. So these are, you know, the Scandinavians of the Commonwealth. And I suppose they're fair for the same reason that the Scandinavians are fair-skinned. They need as little melanin as possible so they can absorb as much of the sun as possible because they're you know near the pole i remember uh, rosha with his red hair is supposed to identify him as a southerner and the stint keeper speaks to severian's own mind i think he says the singing almost makes you want to join them he says he's seen a lot of them going through town and he says but precious few going back well that's what war is i believe I always try to tell myself they're still there. I mean, wherever it is they went. But you know and I know there's a lot that have gone to stay. Still, singing makes a man want to go with them. I followed for years and years now, though the battles they fight never seem to make much difference. You understand me? It never seems to get much closer to us or much farther off either. What I've always supposed was that our autark and theirs appoints a spot to fight in, and when it's over, they both go home. <laughs> My wife, fool that she is, don't believe there's a real war at all. <laughs> and this sort of sums up American war since 1948. <laughs> Korea. Yeah. Vietnam, Afghanistan. Yeah, well, especially Korea. Because, I mean, what we're also getting here in the very first chapter is a reminder that the front is out there and that Severian's going to be getting closer and closer to it the whole time. And then, of course, Citadel is mostly a story of fighting in a war. But it's right here, right? It's sort of mentioned as a random possibility or at least a far-off thing once you're still within the wall. But now in this first one, we're getting our first glimpse of not just soldiers, you know, coming back for the winter or something like that, but actual people who are, you know, pretty close to being fighting it. So just a reminder, 
for Severian and from Wolf that we're actually making progress towards a war front. So there's that going on in addition to all the other strangeness. You're getting closer and closer to a war. But the wife's comment also speaks to the paranoia that this book evokes in the reader about every little bit of exposition. Mm -hmm. The innkeeper's wife thinks all the soldiers are going to look for Vodalus, which the innkeeper considers ridiculous. He's just a bandit. But anyway, this early in the book, I mean, if you read this, maybe you are thinking, well, maybe we're going to find out that there is no war at all. This is like a 1984 or something. And again, it's an example of Wolf kind of telling you the truth where we find out that the the way the battles are going, yeah, they pretty much kind of stay right in one Mm -hmm. central spot. They come come home for the winter (laughs) and then they go back out. Yeah. And keep fighting in the same place. All right. So the people are still setting up for the fair. And this is interesting. They're putting up bristling masks on tall poles that seem to have sprouted from the ground like trees. Bristling masks. I don't even have any idea what that. It would maybe masks with big spikes coming off the front of them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like scary, you know, <laughs> old punk rock studs or something like that. I don't know. Someone should draw a picture of that. Then Severian breaks off in an aside that has a similar feel and placement to the one in the first chapter of Shadow, a reverie about his memory. Whatever I possess, I would give to become one of you, who complain every day at memories fading. My own do not. They remain always, and always as vivid as at their first impression, so that once summoned, they carry me off spellbound. You see, I've always harbored a theory, one that I don't find useful anymore, that every time Severian bragged about his memory, there was probably some mistake in memory shortly afterward. And I don't think I was alone in that because there's a comment that from early on, people have cited it as an error in memory. So I suspect that they were also looking for it. Severian walks away from the keeper and he says, I felt the bone-strewn paths of the necropolis under my feet, and I saw through the drifting river fog the slender figure of Vodalus as he gave his pistol to his mistress and drew his sword. All right. Now, a lot of people have noted that Vodalus didn't give the pistol directly to Thea. He gave it to Hildegrin, and Thea took it. Honestly, you know, even at my most paranoid, I never considered this to be a big deal. I always thought, you know, the first error was significant. What do you think? You think this is an error in memory? I do. Because it fits so well with the fact of Severian bragging, there being something that you can literally go check and see that it's false. This actually makes me feel like the Drought and Roach thing in the first chapter is definitely not a typo. <laughs> because but, it's... But with the Drought and Roach, that's a, a counterfactual, right? In this case, yeah, okay, he kind of melds the event slowly in his mind yeah yeah i still i still think it is because it it's the kind of thing again that you could easily check and go look at and and also just being the first chapter and right after you brag about your memory that it seems like you would definitely be double checking yeah you would be looking for something like that then (laughs) and anybody like even even David Hartwell, first time through, could easily go back and just pick up the first chapter again and, and take a look. So, yeah, I still feel like it is. And I still feel like it's either a bit of a joke or just probably in the end, 
I feel like it's more Wolf saying, yeah, even when somebody brags that they have a perfect memory, it's still perspective and they're human. And so there are going to be tiny flaws that creep in. This may not matter. Like this particular thing that he gets wrong may not matter at all, but it's just yet another reminder that you know your perceptions are limited and are capable of error. Yeah. Even if it's in a small way. Yeah. It's kind of the same. I, I feel like it's kind of the same thing, but. I see, I see the point, but I just, then again, I don't. I just like the idea too, that Wolf is so sharp that every time he brags, there's also to make sure there's something small in there just to, just to put a crack. Yeah. But with, with Drota and Rosha, I finally come to an explanation for why that is. I don't really have an explanation for why. This one. Yeah, this one. I And the, I don't know. This one, I don't necessarily have a plot explanation. I feel like it's more Wolf. Is he toying with us again? A little bit. Yeah, I think toying in the sense of... And leave the readers alone, Gene. <laughs> but yeah, toy, just toying in the sense of reminding you that Severian is human. Even, even when he brags about his superhuman things, he's absolutely human. Still flawed. All right. Well, this final passage, we should read it because it's good. And this is how he wraps up the chapter. I felt the bone-strewn paths of the necropolis under my feet, and saw through the drifting river fog the slender figure of Vodalus as he gave his pistol to his mistress and drew his sword. Now it is a sad thing to have become a man. I was struck by the extravagance of the gesture. He who had professed in a hundred clandestine placards to be fighting for the old ways, for the ancient high civilization earth has now lost, has discarded the effectual weapon of that civilization. If my memories of the past remain intact, perhaps it's only because the past exists only in memory. Vodalus, who wished as I did to summon it again, yet remained a creature of the present. That we are capable only of being what we are remains our unforgivable sin. And by the way, I just say that's that right there is kind of the same point about having having a flaw that there's something anyway no doubt if i had been one of you whose memories fade i would have rejected him on that morning as i elbowed my way through the crowd and so in some fashion would have escaped this death in life that grips me even as i write these words or perhaps i wouldn't have escaped at all yes more likely not and in any case the old recalled emotions were too strong i was trapped in admiration for what i had once admired as a fly in amber remains the captive of some long-banished pine. Yeah. So let's see. Severian notes that Vodalus discarded his pistol to use a sword, but it sounds like he's not saying that it was appropriate for him to do so because he was trying to bring back a fabled lost age for Earth. Rather, the pistol that he discarded, that's the old weapon of that lost age. We've reached a point where fancy Buck Roger weapons are the weapons of the ancient lost age. Swords, axes, you know, those are contemporary fighting. Vodalus, for all his attested goals, is a contemporary creature. He chose to use a sword. And Severian says that if he could forget, like we do, if his memories faded, then he thinks he'd have maybe, possibly, given up on Vodalus after seeing the Autarch's armies march by. But because his memories of that night were as clear as if they just happened, he was, quote, trapped in admiration for what I had once admired as a fly in amber remains a captive of some long vanished pine. 
And it's an interesting observation about the value of normal human weaknesses of memory. Having recently read A Borrowed Man, it occurs to me that this is kind of a similar theme, that immortality is not as useful a feature as it would seem, and the same is true for an immortal memory. Also, he makes a reference to, I might have escaped this death in life that grips me, even as I write these words. And that death in life, that's that's Thecla trapped in him, right? I think so. That one I was puzzling over for a while, but I, I think so. But at the same time, it's... Would that be Thecla? Yeah, that might be Thecla talking there, right? That could be her voice saying that she could have escaped that. Because Severian actually likes having her there, but maybe Thecla doesn't like being there. That's what confused me about that a little bit, just because Severian seems to relish having Thecla there most of the time. By the way, the other thing, that last word, the long vanished pine, it is a nice little pun because you can pine for things from the past. Oh, yes. Oh, how nice. Gotta be real. Oh, also, he says, maybe I would have escaped this death in life. Oh, well, probably not. And that's because, you know, he was abducted by Vodalus's men within and, and taken to the feast, yeah. which he couldn't have escaped. So it's also a different kind of relationship to having some kind of ideal that you want to live up to. Like here, having the past and wanting to live up to it, but then always just being a creature of the present, that's a bad thing. It seems like how he's saying it. Whereas the symbol, the coin, is something that seems to be a little bit more positive the way Severian describes it. So it's kind of neat that you get a little bit of a switch on not exactly the same idea, but just the idea that sometimes a symbol or an ideal or something like that can make you become something else like the coin. But then also sometimes those ideals, maybe if they're past ideals can hold you back. Yeah. The only other thing too, that I think is cool is that here he actually talks about the placards that Vodalus had put up propaganda. Um, and we never get that in shadow. You never really quite get how people might know Vodalus. But as soon as he says that, I feel like you're a little bit more in like V for Vendetta land <laughs> where, where you get. the Yeah. Well, we're also, we're also outside of Nessus itself. We're closer. To but it. yeah. So Vodalus here comes up again as something that, there's some good in him that maybe Severian is drawn to, but now we get more of a sense that Vodalus is not quite so wonderful a thing. And this is really the first time that that we get that hint, I think. All through the first book, Vodalus is still seen as potentially a wonderful alternative. But this is, if I'm right, this is the first time where Severian, looking back, is more regretful of going after Vodalus. Right. Yeah. He's discovered someone who doesn't think he's so hot anymore. Right. He's he's just a bandit out here. All these ideas of adventure and glory have kind of melted away. And that's the end. So we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections and complaints all about the there must be something here. <laughs> Let me hear what you think about Morwenna and bring them all to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that on the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review and tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moria favor you. See you next time. Johnny was a schoolboy. Hey, mama, I'm going.
big star someday yeah. Mama came to the door with a teardrop in her eye Johnny said don't cry mama smiled and waved goodbye Vinkners. Okay. All right. I am back. It's a good thing you left. Emily is, sounds like she's hammering. She was hammering a (laughs) picture into the wall. That's fun. That was one time. I still remember that. There was a blooper or something where you you yelled (laughs) either upstairs, are you taking up carpentry? Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. She's moving furniture around. Ah, I gotcha. <laughs> of course. It's it's only 1030. So that's <laughs> right. Amber does the same thing. <laughs> yeah, she really right. does, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like getting ready for bed and then she'll be like, could we rearrange the bedroom? Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we cannot. <laughs> I feel like I should have something better to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting tired, I think, is what's going on. Yeah, no, no. We're both I I I I detected it about half hour ago, actually. <laughs> So let me wrap up the last butt here. Yay. Yay.